starting a new series today, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Before Christmas, we spent a little over a year meeting Jesus uh, in John's gospel, John's account of what Jesus was like, of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And the purpose of John's gospel, John tells us, is that you would believe and in believing that you would have life in his name. And that life isn't just a one day, someday, go to heaven sort of life, though that's there, but it's life right now, life in the meantime, life between, uh, life between the first and second comings of Jesus. And so I felt like a good place for us to go next was how does Jesus' life, how does the gospel, the good news about Jesus, what does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for our living And Paul gives us a great example of that in his letter to the Philippians. And so uh, today I'll just introduce the series and we'll look at a couple of verses and really dive in wholesale next week. And so if you would, if you turn to the gospel, excuse me, the the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Let's give attention to God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we begin looking at this letter, we pray that you would use it as a a magnifying glass, as a searchlight, a spotlight, help us to peer into our own souls, uh, to root out those areas of sin in our lives. And Lord, encourage us, us to follow you. God, I pray that, uh, that you would examine us, that we would examine ourselves, and that you would use our time uh, in front of your word, under your word, to change us, to transform us. And so God, would you bless the reading of your word and the hearing of your word, and now the preaching of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are entitled to certain unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That phrase, paraphrase as it may be, comes from the Declaration of Independence, right? The document that really started uh, our country, that really began our country. There's some debate when Jefferson and those early writers talked about government ensuring the pursuit of happiness. There's some debate about what they meant by that. Happiness, the meaning of that word happiness has really morphed and changed, as language does, over the course of the last two and a half centuries. Happiness. The pursuit of happiness. I would argue that what Jefferson meant was not a, just a, a good feeling of, of um, you know, I'm feeling happy, feeling good. But uh, that what Jefferson was talking about and what the writers of that document were talking about is a sense of well-being, a sense of thriving, a sense of prosperity. And in that way, they capture what we've been looking for for a very long time. That almost from the moment we've been created, we are pursuing happiness. 
But I know it's true in my life and it's true in yours. When we pursue happiness, often the compass needle is bent. That it doesn't quite point in the direction of true north. That we sometimes, even the very things that we pursue to bring us happiness, to bring us joy, peace, contentment, bring us right the opposite. And what I find more often than not is the people and the things that I seek to place my happiness in or find my happiness in at best prove discouraging and at worst prove devastating. Peace, joy, contentment, happiness. These are the things about which Paul writes in Philippians. Paul One of the early apostles, one of the earliest men sent out by Jesus. He planted churches all over the known world, all over the Roman Empire. Paul writes as a man who has discovered. He even makes this claim in this letter that he has discovered the secret of being content in all circumstances. Can you fathom that? And maybe you think, well, sure, Paul probably had it easy. His life was a good life. No, Paul writes this letter where, in which he says he's found the secret of true contentment and it's in which he says rejoice multiple times. Paul writes this letter from prison. Paul is under arrest when he writes this letter as we're going to find as we go through it. And yet here is a man who has discovered what it means truly, not in the fleeting sense of the word, but truly to be happy. Truly to have joy. That's the gist of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Those are some of the things we're going to see. Today, as we look at these first couple of verses, I just want to point out a couple of things. One, joy comes with a new master. Two, joy comes with a new identity. And ultimately, joy only comes by grace and peace. Paul says at the beginning... Paul and Timothy, Timothy was one of Paul's apprentices, one of his friends, one of his helpers. He would go on to pastor a couple of churches, uh, help a couple of churches that we know of in the New Testament. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, my translation says servant, and in the footnote it says bondservant. Maybe your translation says bondservant. That's not really a term we use. Maybe your translation says slave. And if, we, and if it weren't for our painful past with what's called chattel slavery, which our country practiced in the 18th, uh, 19th centuries, um, maybe that word would be okay for us to use. Maybe it would help us get a picture, but there's not quite an equivalence there. What we practice and what Paul's talking about are really two different things, but there are some similarities. When Paul says that he is a servant or a slave of Christ, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of things that he's talking about later on, um, or excuse me, earlier in the New Testament, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and in that letter he says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. This idea of being a servant of Jesus means that you don't belong to yourself, that you have been redeemed, that you have been purchased and certainly that has in it the idea of slavery that what jesus has done is he has 
bought for himself a people. He has bought for himself individuals. And because he has purchased us, because he has purchased Paul, then Paul understands that he is not his owner. He is not his own master, but he belongs to another. And so in this idea of being a slave of Christ Jesus is ownership. Also in this idea of being a slave of Christ is a sense of loyalty, allegiance. If I belong to Jesus, then I must follow him with a whole heart. That was certainly Paul's mindset. He picks this up in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6, where he's addressing the objection that his message of grace leads people to sin. The objection is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I keep on sinning because I'm not under law but under grace? And Paul says, that's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. In Romans 6, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In that passage, Paul is capturing the idea that we, that we are always slaves. We belong to someone. Are we slaves of sin? And really the question that Paul is bringing up and that, that this word needs to put before me and before you is, who's your master? Who or what are you serving? Paul says he is a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. And because he is, a fundamental change has occurred. To be a slave of Christ Jesus means that I have been set free from sin and death. And my life now belongs to him. In other words, you're a rescue dog. Right? You, you belong to a harsh and cruel master who has beat you. And as a result, your life is characterized by maybe fear. You cower always in insecurity and fear. Or maybe like the master who has beat you, you now are cruel and hateful. And Paul says what has happened is a new owner has come along. And he's rescued you. And he's bought you out from that cruel master. And because he's bought you out from that cruel master and brought you into his own family, into his ownership, your cruelty can be transformed into kindness. And your fear can be turned into trust. That by the grace and love of God, you are being made new. All of this is in Paul when he says, a slave. Of Christ Jesus. The key phrase being of Christ Jesus. Jesus is a good master. He is not a harsh master. We heard it in Matthew 11. Come all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. It's not that Jesus doesn't put a yoke on us. But he bears the yoke with us. There is certainly a yoke. There is certainly a servitude. Paul is not afraid of using the language of slavery. But who you're enslaved to is what matters. And Paul says he is a slave, a servant 
of Christ Jesus. And so joy comes when you belong to and serve Jesus, the new master. Joy also comes with a new identity. Paul says, to all the saints, not some of the saints, not just the powerful, not just the pillars of the church, but to all the saints who are at Philippi. Saints. That word saint. It's become to mean, in some cases, the spiritually elite. But that's not the case of the New Testament. A saint. A holy one. That's what the word literally means, holy ones. But you have to define holy. And holy means set apart, literally. Set apart. That a, that a break has been made. We do this, we do this all the time. Think of, uh, think of our holidays, which really is just a shortened form of the, word, of the phrase holy days. Veterans Day is a day that is set apart to honor veterans. Christmas Day is a day that is set apart to observe the birth of Jesus, and so on and so forth. You, we do this in other parts of our lives, where we set apart things for a specific purpose. That's what it means to be holy. And when we're talking about people, to be a set-apart person means to be set apart from sin. And here is the parallel with slavery, that we're, we're no longer a part of the old way. We're no longer dominated, as the Bible says, by the old man, by the old woman, by the flesh. We're set apart from that. But the flip side of that coin is that we're set apart to something. That we are now set apart to God. We are set apart to Christ for His purposes, for our joy. Now, the problem we get into is that we equate being a saint, we equate being set apart with pulling ourselves up by our religious bootstraps, right? When, I mean, this is what we mean when we say, well, I'm no saint. When we say that, we're not saying, well, I'm not really set apart by Jesus. No, we're saying, well, I'm just not very good. That's what we mean when we say, I'm no saint. But that's not really in view here. To be a saint is not to pull yourself up by your religious bootstraps, The qualifier, Paul says, is to all the saints in Christ Jesus. We are not set apart in and of ourselves. We are set apart because of Christ. We are set apart because of what Jesus has done. We are saints because we are in Him. And now with that identity, that's our new identity, that identity comes with a calling. To be sure. But you can't divorce the calling from the identity. Because when you do, you get something altogether different. You get, uh, you get sola bootstrapa. You get religious observant as my means of, of pleasing God. Don't divorce the calling of the saint from the identity of the saint in Christ Jesus. It's rewriting The old hymn, it's not that old, from 1959, which is an adaptation of uh, of an Indian, from an Indian 
song, a story about an Indian who was under persecution, but it was the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, right? This very triumphalistic, I'm going to go conquer the world, which there's truth in that if it's being said in a persecuted sense, but that's not really how we use it. And so I actually prefer Red Mountain Music's rewriting of that hymn. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. No turning back. No turning back. We have a new identity, and with that new identity comes a new calling. We are indeed set apart, and we are set apart in Christ Jesus. He establishes our identity. He gives us our calling. And just a a word of application. It matters how we see each other. It matters what name we call one another. There's a couple of things Paul could have said, and they probably would have been true. It's interesting that Paul doesn't come to them and say, to all the really good people in Philippi who know how to get it all right. Nor does he come to them and say, to all you hopeless baptized pagans in Philippi, I'm so tired of you. No, he uses the word saint, which captures the best reality. He even uses the word saint when he writes to Corinth. And they didn't get anything right, or hardly anything right. Saints. It matters how we view each other because it changes how we talk to one another. Yes, we were wretched sinners, but now we're saints. And what I mean by that is, when Paul calls us saints, and when we view each other as saints, what we're saying is, I didn't earn my righteousness. That whatever good there is in me, I didn't put it there. Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own. In this letter, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that means is when we call each other saints, when we view each other this way, when we talk to one another this way, it means humility. It means as we're going to find out that I can actually view you as better than myself. Because if I didn't do it, I have nothing to stand on. It means I'm far better than I deserve. And at one point, I was far worse than you could even imagine. And those dual realities help us to see one another honestly and deal with one another humbly. That's in the calling of a saint. A new master, a new identity... How is all this possible? Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, God's unearned, unmerited, unbounded, loving kindness to sinful people who deserve anything but. That's grace. Grace is what moves God the Father to send God the Son, 
to purchase slaves. To purchase people who are enslaved to sin, enslaved to their lust, the desires of their flesh, which Steve read about from James. It's grace that moves God into the world to purchase and redeem those people. A people for his own treasured possession. That's grace. And it's accomplished at the price of the Son's blood, his own holy blood. So we are slaves of grace. We are saints because of grace. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. We are what we are because of grace and nothing less. And everything else would be less than grace. Peace. A restored relationship that is purchased by grace. Because of the grace of God, we are at peace with God. Peace, shalom, well-being, All is well. When I'm at peace, it means that that I am no longer at war with you. And I am no longer at war with God. To be at peace is one of the greatest treasures of human existence. It means that all is well between me and you. And all is well ultimately between you and God. And the only thing that makes true peace a reality is God's grace in the Son. So if I have trusted in God's grace in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, then I have peace. Maybe not completely, fully, perfectly now, but I'm getting there. And we will have it one day, someday. Grace and peace. Joy only comes by grace and peace. And the truest expression, the only real expression of God's grace to us is in Jesus, His Son, who has poured out His life blood so that we would have peace with God and peace with one another. If you would know true joy, you must know the Son. Did you hear the recurring phrase, slaves of Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the point. Christ Jesus is the ground. He is our true joy. And because He is our true joy, it radiates out from there. So as we come to the table this morning, you need to know that this table, Jesus' table, not Grace Fellowship's table, Not the Presbyterian Church in America's table, but Jesus' table is a table of grace and peace. It's opened by grace. No one earns a seat at this table. In fact, the only one who earns a seat at the table is Jesus. And everyone else who comes to the table comes at the invitation of Jesus. And so if you don't yet believe in Jesus, if you haven't accepted the invitation of the master of the feast, then the table is not open to you and we would ask that you let the bread and wine pass you by. But know that the invitation to Jesus stands. 
that if you wrestle, that if you have tried a thousand ways to be happy and tried a thousand joys that have all disappointed and devastated you, then Jesus stands ready to save. Jesus stands ready to receive. Come to him. It's a table of peace. It's a table for those who have made peace with God. And it's a table for those who have made peace with others. Paul had stern words of warning to the church in Corinth because they were using the table as a means for their own satisfaction. The rich were getting drunk and the poor were going hungry. And Paul says those kind of divisions don't belong in the body. Those kind of divisions don't belong among saints. And so if you have peace with God, make peace with one another and come to the table that is opened by grace for peace. Let's pray. O oh God in heaven, as we enjoy the lavish goodness of your grace, as we've heard about it from your word and now... We hope to taste the glories of the gospel in the bread and in the juice. Would you take these common elements and would you use them for that mysterious and yet beautiful purpose that you've ordained for them? To take common bread and common juice and give us a visible, tangible, tasteable picture of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name.